You're listening to episode 62 of Fearless Rebel Radio. I am talking to my girl, Anastasia, a more body image educator, self-esteem coach, and author of Inside Out, all about how to stop letting your weight dictate your worth, why feeling sexy is a state of mind, and how she practices fearless body confidence. I can't wait for you to hear this. Before we get started, head to summerinandin.com or just go to thebodyimagecoach.com to get your hands on my free 10-day body confidence makeover. And it's amazing. That's all you need to know. So if you haven't signed up for it yet, go there to thebodyimagecoach.com and sign up for it. And then we will get started with this show. Hello, everyone. I am really, really pumped about today's guest. I have on the show today Anastasia Amor. Anastasia is a body image educator and self-esteem coach dedicating her life to making sure that women everywhere have access to the tools, information, and resources that they need to make peace with their bodies. Her advice is honest, vulnerable, and raw, appealing to women from all walks of life, from those struggling with eating disorders to yoga dieters to those who just seek to feel comfortable in their own skin drawing on her extensive knowledge both personal and professional in the fields of body image and psychology Anastasia encourages women to embrace fearless body confidence empowering them with the knowledge they need to pursue a lifelong healthy relationship with themselves mind body and soul welcome to the show hi Sama thanks for having me Uh, As we were talking about offline, I am so happy to have you here, and I know a lot of my listeners are big fans of yours, so uh, Um, I'm excited for you to kind of share share your story and and insights with them. It's like I was was saying, I've been listening to to every episode of Fearless Rebel Radio, and I just, I love the guests that you have on, and I love hearing people's different perspectives, so so I'm so excited to share mine with you today. Yeah, I think that's so cool. I was like, oh my god, you listen to the show? (laughs) I'm a bit of a fangirl, I will admit. (laughs) (laughs) That's like crazy to me. I was like, I'm like a fangirl of yours, so that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. Um, And like, maybe this comes as a surprise to people that you're from Australia, because that was something I don't think I realized until after I'd been following you for a while. So you can probably tell from my accent, I'm, I'm quite Australian, but most people assume I'm from the States, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of the body image activists are from over the States. So mm-hmm. it's kind of cool when people realize it. Some people do struggle to understand my accent. So I'm sorry if no one knows what the hell I'm actually saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> I I know. I, I know one thing that um, Australians tend to say, like, instead of saying, like, how are you? you don't you say, like, how's it how are you How's it going? How, how are you going? How are you going? Yeah, how are yeah. you going? I find that one to be like the most uh like I don't know, interesting. <laughs> the, very the, interesting phrases and I kind of don't realize it until I talk to people from other countries and they're like, "What? What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "Oh, right. We only say that in Australia." <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm Canadian. We have our own dialect too. So, it's I'm sure. good. <laughs> Well, let's uh let's have you dive in and tell our listeners a little more about your story and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Um, well, my story started in childhood, like everyone else's. Um, I was the stereotypical fat kid, and I spent all of lower primary school kind of progressing from overweight to obese, and I'd always had 
kind of a screwed up relationship with food. I had strange feelings around it. Whenever I was eating, I used food to, to medicate my emotions and, you know, being the fat kid, obviously I was bullied quite a lot in school, as, as most kids are, which is quite sad. Um, but I'd always had a strange relationship with food. Um, and as I entered high school and moved to a new school, it was a new environment, new kids, an entirely different situation, which is stressful in itself, along with the, the raging hormones that were starting to overtake my body. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to diet because I was at a very unhealthy level of obesity, so I wanted to get down to a healthy weight. Um, and I started off doing it the right way. I, you know, I cut down my portion sizes. I stopped eating three bowls of pasta at a time because, you know, pasta is my one true love. Um, <laughs> So I stopped doing that um, and I started going about it the right way. I wasn't exercising because I still had that, that fat girl complex of people will stare at me if I jiggle. And I got down to a healthy weight, but I still had all these, these strange feelings around food and my body and exercise. And I, the part of dieting that I really enjoyed was actually using it as a punishment. And I kind of enjoyed beating myself up for being fat more than I enjoyed getting down to a healthy weight, which was quite surprising. Mm. And I didn't really know how to reconcile all these feelings. So um, I I kept dieting. I told myself that it was a diet, but, I mean, it was a slippery slope. And somewhere along the way from I'm going to cut down my portion sizes, that slipped into anorexia, which, you know, it's biological and it had likely been within me all along and those triggers were always there. And in hindsight, when I look back, I can see the signs of those disordered thought processes right from about age age four onwards so in hindsight it's no surprise that that happened but um it was a slippery slope and then I spent five and a half nearly six years battling anorexia I got down to a very low weight I wasn't the the stereotypical walking skeleton that the media likes to depict but I did get down to, to quite a thin weight it completely overtook my life, I wanted to die, I was miserable um, and it took some some major health scares to kind of wake me up and make me want to start recovering. And, and even when I did make the decision to start recovering, it still took me multiple attempts at it because my heart wasn't truly in it. It's, it's quite crazy how, how much you come to associate with eating disorders when you have one. It becomes this, this inextricable, um, you know, completely ingrained part of your personality excuse me that you don't necessarily want to disassociate with so I was I was more tied to it mentally than I realized and I still I had this this great sense of shame and stigma around what I was going through I never actually admitted at the time to anyone not even my parents that I was struggling nor did I admit to them that I was trying to recover myself so I ended up doing it all myself I didn't seek professional help from a therapist which was an absolute mistake and doing it myself was the hardest thing I've ever done and it was only in the later stages of my recovery that I did actually seek professional help which was good to reinforce all those those new positive habits that I was learning um so so after I had made a full recovery um and of course I've still had relapses since then because those happened but um I I made the decision that I wanted to help other people particularly young people with the information that they would need if they were struggling with body image issues because at the time I was I was quite disheartened at how 
little information there was out there to actually help people. It seemed to be either really cold, hard facts in psychological textbooks, which I did love, or this this really kind of fluffy advice like, you know, take a bubble bath and light some candles and then dance around naked in front of the mirror. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's great. That's actually not going to solve an eating disorder. That's just going to make me feel slightly romantic, if anything. So, I mean, there are these two completely opposite ends of the spectrum and I wanted to be part of providing that, that middle ground. So I kind of made it my mission um, I started educating myself more in not just how I could help myself but how I could help others and it all kind of snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. And like, you know, was there was there a moment that was like a real turning point for you where you were like, I, this is like a real problem? There were lots of turning points that I kind of, ignored at the time I mean towards the later stages of it there were quite severe physical symptoms like I'd I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd cough up blood or I'd I'd pass out there were all these sort of these health warning signs that I heard and in the back of my mind that little voice in my head says this really isn't good you need to do something but then there's that other part that was still like but it's who you are this is who you're destined to be you can't let it go and I was kind of just determined to to shrink myself into invisibility despite all those warning signs. But the more those happened, the more I realised that there was a part of me that didn't actually want to lose my life to this. And one day that, that positive voice was just a tiny bit stronger and I decided to listen to it. And I'm so glad I did because, I mean, there are so many points where that happened where I didn't listen to it and if I'd gone on not listening to it, I probably wouldn't be here. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely sure why I decided to listen to it on that occasion, but I did. And I'm so happy that I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned like you felt like ashamed of, of your, of the, of the fact that you had an eating disorder and like you, that kind of made you not seek help from, from somebody yeah. else. Um, like what, at what point were you like, I, I really can't do this on my own or, or at what point did you like kind of decide to kind of own your story and share it with your parents and, and others? I actually only shared my story with my parents about two, three years ago. So after I'd made the full recovery, it was kind of just never discussed. And obviously my parents knew what was going on. They were very concerned. You know, mum would stand outside my bathroom door while I was showering to make sure I wasn't vomiting or passed out or dead, which is just awful. And I feel so bad for putting my parents through that. But it was kind of never discussed in detail. It was always just sort of, I'm so glad you're past that, which was good. And I think for my parents and for a lot of people's parents, they don't really know what to say. They're in quite a powerless position if their kids won't talk to them. And I think my parents definitely felt powerless. So it wasn't until I sort of shared it with the world that I started divulging more and more information to my parents. So (laughs) it was a bit backwards and then I told other people before them. Sometimes parents are like the hardest ones to tell. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you don't want to disappoint them. And obviously my parents knew what was going on, but I guess there's still that that part of me that wants to believe that they remained oblivious and didn't want to taint the image of myself in their mind as as their little girl sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you don't want to hear what they have to say either, so I think that prevents us from, like, sharing those things too. 
That's true. That's true. So you, you, um, you know, you mentioned you had some relapses and, um, like, I think that's really important for people to understand. Can you talk a bit about like what that process to recovery was like and, and what are, you know, what are some really important things for, for women to understand about that? Sure. Um, I was definitely quite naive when I started recovering in that I expected it to be like a destination. Like I thought I'd start recovering, it would be relatively moderate to difficult. Um, and then I get there and then I'd be recovered and I'd never have to think about it again. So I sort of did that and I went through the motions and I tried to change my behavior and then I got to a place where my weight had restored, but I hadn't necessarily done enough mental work. And then whenever triggers popped up, I found myself bam, like right back, smack bang in the middle of, of these disordered behaviours and I didn't actually realise that it was an ongoing journey and something that I would need to work at for the rest of my life. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realise. There's that misconception that once you're recovered, like you're there, you're golden, you'll never have to think about it again, it's just something that you overcame. And for a lot of people, they might never have relapses but the reality is a lot of people do. And the biggest learning curve for me was accepting that relapses can and do and will happen probably for the rest of my life Um, and that it's about mitigating those and catching the warning signs before they occur and really staying on top of my self-love tactics so that I can minimise the amount of times that they actually happen. And I definitely, definitely didn't realise that when I started recovering, which is why it took me so many times. It was like two steps forward, one step back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you put a lot of, a lot of work into it. Like, you, you know, you had the, there was a lot of like tenacity around, like, this is, I'm going to recover. Like, I'm going. <laughs> yeah, and I sure. think that's really important for people to understand is that you you can't really like, there's no shortcut to it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and this isn't even just in the realm of eating disorders. It's just women who are trying to get off chronic dieting as well. Like it, you know, the same, Absolutely. I think there's, there's certainly a difference. Like there's obviously, you know, disordered eating and eating disorders kind of fall on a spectrum, but, um, like it, the same, the same thing applies is that we sort of just want like a quick fix. Like, just like, just fix me. Like, just tell me what to do. So it's better. And like, it's, it's really like an ongoing, like, like you said, for the rest of your life. Yeah, for sure. And I think beyond even determination and tenacity, if you do happen to have a relapse or fall back into a diet or have a you know disordered body image thought in whatever range of the spectrum, it's really, really disheartening because you can think you're doing super well and then you have this, this setback. And for a lot of people, even if you're super determined and you want to progress, it's kind of just a kick in the teeth and it makes you think, oh, maybe I'm not cut out for this. And then the self, self-doubt self starts. And then for a lot of people, they stop trying. And that's where you really need to keep trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's sometimes there's a lot of shame in, in uh, like relapses or even just like, you know, feeling like you're not there yet. Like, and, yeah. and um, you know, that's why I, pr- I really appreciate like your, your, your honest opinion on it. And I try to be really transparent with that too. And that, um, like, uh, that didn't, the confidence for me didn't happen overnight. Like, it was like, you know, and like, you still have bad days and like, and it is the most important, the most important time to kind of get yourself out of it is when you do fall down, fall down again. Like, and I think that, instead of seeing it as like a a shameful occurrence or like, Oh my God, something's wrong with me. It's like, okay, what's kind of the lesson here. And, 
um, you know, who, where can I go for help? And, um, you know, how can I try to prevent this from happening again and be more aware? Absolutely. And for me, it was really helpful seeing women like yourself, I mean, who people look up to, you have this confidence and knowing that we're all human and that even the most confident people still have those moments. And that's why I think it's so important to have this vulnerability and sharing and community online so that we can see that we all have these struggles and that being confident and loving your body isn't this this final destination or this like nirvana that it's made out to be. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about that. Cause that's, I love, I love to kind of like, you know, share thoughts on this. What does loving your body mean to you? For me, it means contentment and acceptance. So my definition of it has definitely changed over the years. And when I first initially completed my recovery, I guess it was all about the body and loving the body was about constantly reminding myself how amazing my body was, you know, physically, aesthetically, what it could do for me. And, and that certainly helps. But um, I found that that did bring certain pitfalls in that my self-confidence was always inextricably tied to how my body looks, which was problematic. So for me these days, loving my body means a sort of contentment where, yes, I love my body. I love how it looks. I love its flaws. I love what it does for me. I love how strong it is, but I'm not preoccupied in thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more like a state of mind or like a state of being as opposed to like a constantly being in the state of like attraction to yourself. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's something I'm trying to like really communicate more because um, you know, the the phrase loving your body like quote unquote gets thrown around so much and I think like, you know, there's a lot of um associations with it like you said of like women like having a bath like with the candles and like the home and garden magazine or whatever um (laughs) it's ridiculous right when you actually look at it and you see all these women and they're beaming as they're eating a salad and they're surrounded by like little tubes of lipstick and they're in this constant state of bliss and it's like i've never done that that's bullshit (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know right I know it drives me nuts. That's why I, I like, I love, I love your approach to it, and uh, just like the, the realness of it. <laughs> it's like you've got to put no. the realness into it because I mean, we're all human. It's it's totally unreasonable to expect us, any of us, to be in this constant state of bliss. It's just to do that would be to be denying actually being human, and it's just not realistic. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I know, like, I know you've written about this on your blog before, but like, you talk about like going to a place of body neutrality. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so that's kind of what I was what I was meaning, referring to this state of contentment, where you're not necessarily thinking about your body or being in that constant state of attraction, like you were saying. Um, And for me, I find body neutrality a really helpful place to be, because if you can find that state of acceptance with your body, where you're not necessarily feeling overtly positive or negative about it, you can kind of redirect your bad body image moments to a state of neutrality rather than negativity. Mm -hmm. So if your usual default is a state of positivity and thinking, I'm really strong, I'm really awesome, I love this, I love that, yada, 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 and then you have a bad body image moment, if you can revert that to, oh, it's just my body, rather than I hate my body, my body's bad, my body's awful, that makes a huge, huge difference. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like um, instead of saying, like, I'm, uh, it's it's taking the shame away from it. Yeah, for sure. It's it's all about that internal self-talk of the self-doubt and the shame, as you were saying, 
um, and just kind of being aware of your own thought patterns. And, of course, we all have different thought patterns. For some people, that might not be saying, I hate my body. For some, it might just be a general feeling of, of ickiness or discontentment. And if you can change that to just be total neutrality and not really caring either way and just acknowledging your body as a body, then that can make a huge difference. And it's it's not necessarily going to be what heals your relationship with your body, but I think it's also important to address the fact that we all will and do have those negative body image moments. So if we can realign those as close to how we want to feel as possible, that can help. Yeah, and so you talked about like changing changing beliefs, which is a huge massive part of this process what you know how did you change your beliefs or like you know how do you help other women to change their beliefs a huge part of it I find is digging deep into the stories that we tell ourselves because we all have these stories that we tell ourselves about our past and our bodies and our lives um and we tend to look at them at a very surface level so we might um identify with certain labels and certain stories so I could say I was the fat kid I work in body image, blah, blah, I have all these surface-level stories. But without necessarily digging into the how and why of those stories and thinking about when did I first start to feel this way, what are the catalysts that do make me feel that way, how do I want to feel instead, those, those stories kind of always stay on the surface level. So I find therapy really good for this. Talk therapy is the best. Um, having someone guide you through the process you can dig deep into those stories and ask you questions and prompts that make you think about, hmm, why do I actually feel that way or when did that start? That is where you can then start to change your beliefs because, you know, beliefs can be so deeply rooted. Sometimes we don't even know why we have them or when they first started and they just become these these core parts of our lives without us necessarily analysing them. So actually analysing who we are and why we are the way we are is a great starting point to changing any belief, not just body image, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we develop, like, such an emotional connection to, like, the the information that we receive when, you know, as we're growing up, and that can just shape our beliefs so much. And it, so I do, yeah, I do recognize the importance of kind of just, like, uncovering why that might be there so that you Absolutely. can be able to challenge it and reestablish a new belief sure I mean when I first started doing talk therapy I discovered all these these little points and markers within myself um, events that I'd completely forgotten about or just just little things that I'd picked up on over the course of my life and I didn't actually realize until I looked at them how influential they'd been in shaping me in some small way and then kind of unfolding all these things I was confronted with this this rich tapestry of experiences that I'd had that hadn't acknowledged and looking at them, you could kind of piece them together like a jigsaw puzzle and see this totally makes sense because although X event or Y comment seemed insignificant at the time, when you put it together with the greater context, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned like when you were a kid, you were you were like the fat kid and you were bullied, <laughs> you were bullied. So I'm assuming you had a pretty negative association with like the word fat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And a huge part of my recovery was was redirecting that and I think the sad part about a lot of people in eating disorder recovery is it's still overwhelmingly infused with fat phobia and there are all these comments that are intended as positive like no you're not fat you're working towards a healthy weight Um, which you know a healthy weight is important 
But as long as eating disorder recovery is infused with fat phobia, it's very hard to break down those mental barriers that a lot of people build up because, I mean, eating disorders a lot of the time are inherently fat phobic and reinforcing that in the recovery really doesn't help. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's like um, uh, that, you know, that I that's present in in like anti-diet communities as as well. Like, I think that's still that's still like an issue that I see. Like, it's like, OK, well, you know, if you let go of dieting, like, don't worry, you won't gain too much weight. Like, it's like, you know, so it still kind of establishes that like gaining weight is like the worst possible thing, you know, and like like that that fat is like you know, something shameful that you, that no one wants to be. So I think it's, um, you know, and I'm for sure guilty of that before I really became more educated around that issue. So I'm not saying like I have that nailed down at all. Like I try, I try, you know, I'm much more cognizant of it and aware of it now, but certainly like, you know, a couple of years ago it was not. So, um, I think it, I think it goes, I think it like runs rampant through all, um, you know, through eating disorder recovery with, and like anti-diet, anti-diet communities and like health at every size. And, um, I think it's something that all people who are trying to be in body positivity need to be, need to be aware of, of like these insidious ways that we, um, contribute to fat phobic beliefs. For sure. In terms of people, um, you know, retired yo-yo dieters, how do you find the best way to reconcile them from moving away from that fat phobic mentality and moving away from dieting? Because what I find when talking to people and when they're coming out of those cycles of yo-yo dieting is they're very anti-diet and they take that to mean anti-anyone losing weight ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a hard thing to kind of to reconcile with people. Where do you reckon that point is? Um, so what do you mean by that? Like where, like how do you get them to just, to feel? Yeah. What are the the major, the major turning points that you find with the women that you work with in terms of where they shift from no one should ever lose weight ever to kind of addressing the fat phobia and acknowledging that it's okay for some people to lose weight, but we don't all need to be in a constant state of weight loss. Yeah. I think, I think for me, it's really about educating them about like, you know, the, the facts that the fact that like 95% of the time, like long-term weight loss doesn't work. And mm-hmm. that like, if we focus on, like, if we focus on what people really want, you know, like if people who say they want to lose weight, generally it's like what they really want is like to be healthy. And so they just mm-hmm. kind of have this, like, um, you know, this, they've bought into this idea that like weight loss equals health or they want, you know, it for some kind of, um, uh, more like self-esteem purpose or like self-worth purpose. Like they want it to feel better about themselves. So I help them kind of like unravel and blow up the bullshit around their beliefs, you know, like, so if it's like, okay, if it's for health, like, let's actually look at that. Like, let's look at what the research says about, long-term weight loss is it even possible only in five percent of the cases like what is your experience with that been and if you really want health like you can be healthy at many different sizes like let's focus on behaviors because um that's really what health is health is about the behaviors not necessarily about the outcome you know like or yeah. like your body size especially so <laughs> um so it's really about like you know, helping them to understand like the limiting beliefs around that stuff and, and providing them with the evidence to help support it. And then 
helping reinforce that by introducing them to people who are like health at every size, like people like Reagan Chastain or like Linda Bacon's work, like so that they can like reinforce these new beliefs and stop buying into like this old dogma that like (laughs) that weight loss equals health and happiness equals health. Yeah, I always find that really interesting because obviously I work with a lot of people coming out of eating disorders, which does include, you know, some of the less restrictive type eating disorders. But I find that a lot of people tend to assume that people coming out of yo-yo dieting are inherently different from those coming out of eating disorders in the way that their beliefs need to be challenged. And I mean, the mentalities are are very, very similar, regardless of what the disordered thoughts were saying. It's, It's about unpacking that bullshit, like you were saying. So I always find it interesting how the two approaches actually align quite closely oh yeah I mean it's like it's it's a very similar you know state state of mind like I think you know it's and I think one often leads to the other like I think a lot of times women who have had an eating disorder um you know they're still like they might be like quote-unquote recovered but they're not fully recovered and what's remaining is like that diet mentality exactly yeah yeah so I think I mean yeah approaching it in a similar way is is really really important and like challenging the fat phobic beliefs is is huge because I don't think you can truly like you know have like love your body if you have fat phobic beliefs yeah I totally agree yeah so how did you I mean how did you overcome that like how did you how did you it started with exposing myself to a lot of imagery um, beyond what I was viewing in recovery. So, I mean, in recovery, I was looking at stereotypically healthy bodies, not necessarily super ripped, super fit people, but I was definitely only viewing people within a certain weight range. And Instagram has been hugely helpful in challenging those beliefs for me, um, exposing myself to you know, plus-size models, um, bodies of different shapes and abilities. Um, that was... That was a really integral part of challenging those beliefs for me and noticing, hey, these bodies can be healthy, challenging those misconceptions of people of a certain size don't exercise or people of a certain shape can eat whatever they want, really addressing that fat phobia and seeing the diversity and beauty that was out there was really, really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think that's, it's such a huge one for, for people. I know that was like a massive one for, for myself. Um, because you, yeah, you're able to, because in our, in the, in the mainstream world, like you're not seeing a lot of that. (laughs) I know, I know. And there's still that really fat phobic undertone whenever you see plus size models who do happen to make it to the mainstream on a magazine cover like Tess Holiday and Vogue. And out of the woodwork come all of these people saying, oh, it's just not healthy. We can't be promoting this. This isn't healthy. And I think people are missing the point that, simply by someone being in the public eye and existing doesn't necessarily mean that they're saying that they're the pinnacle of health and that everyone should aspire to emulate their body. It's about that that greater diversity and representation and just being okay with saying the fact that, hey, people exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a proven fact that, like, you know, size stigma is a detriment to health. So, yeah. like, you know, there's just... <laughs> The, you know, it just, there's just, yeah, there, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of ignorance out there and there's a lot of change that still needs to happen. 
The thing that makes me really sad is the amount of people who have been at a higher weight or a lower weight than was healthy for them and have got to a healthy weight either by eating disorder recovery or through dieting and then consider themselves gurus on how to motivate people to be healthy and they start using shame and um, and fear and berating people as a motivator and they say, well, you know, shame works for me, shame made me healthy, we need to stop sugarcoating it, we need to stop being so politically correct and we have all these people kind of contributing to that culture and and implying that shame is the best way to encourage self-love and it couldn't be further from the truth and I think that's a huge challenge of, of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems so obvious when you boil it down. Like, it yeah. really seems obvious. Like, it's, it you know, like, would you, if you had a child, like, do you think shaming them is the best way for them to be successful and content? And it's like... Well, some people do think that. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Oh, my God. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But, I mean, like, you know, like, if hating yourself worked, like, and I think this is, like, something that actually Isabel Fox and Duke says, like, if hating yourself worked, like, everyone would be skinny. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So, I think I'm, like, loosely quoting her there. I feel like she said that before, but... um... Yeah. (laughs) It's, 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 shame is a powerful motivator, unfortunately, and the people giving out that advice, they might consider themselves to be fully healthy or fully recovered, but they're not really addressing the underlying themes and beliefs under it. So yeah. that's, that's part of the problem. Yeah. And you really have to look at it like the broader social issue, right? Like it's, yes. you know, it's like, what are we, what are we doing to this, this segment of the population? Like, how are we treating them, you know? And like, how is that affecting, um, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, eat people with eating disorders and just our relationship to ourselves and our bodies and everything else. Like, it's just, it's, it's terrible. And it, and, and if, you know, if we truly believe in like equality and all this stuff, it's like, we really have to look at it from the whole, the whole like social perspective as well. Exactly. We're only scratching the surface if we say, yeah, equality, diversity, representation. But then if we don't actually walk that talk and we find it acceptable to shame people and bully them as a means of trying to be, you know, quote unquote motivational, then that's never, ever going to work. Yeah, I agree. And so, you know, you mentioned like that your, you know, your self-worth was associated with your, like your body size and your appearance. Yeah, for sure. How did you cultivate self-worth outside of that? I stopped looking at myself as a sex object um, because I'd always kind of believed that that was a woman's place. And, I mean, you look at how society still treats women and the dialogue that still surrounds women, it's it's not hard to see why. And um, when I first started losing weight in my eating disorder, I was really, really sad that I lost my breasts because, I mean, as a fat kid, my breasts developed earlier than everyone else's. I was rocking a D cup at age 12. So then losing all that weight, I was really quite sad to lose my breasts almost completely. And I, I viewed that as making me less of a woman and less desirable. So I had all these screwed up connotations of how I needed to be in order to be pleasing to men, which I, I saw as a really important part of life. And um, coming coming out of recovery, I obviously gained weight, I gained more breast tissue, and I was really happy about that because I one of my first thoughts was, oh, yay, I'm a woman again. And I had that thought and then I stopped myself and I thought, hang on, is that all I'm here to be? Is this all my recovery was for, to gain more fat so I could have fat 
in the, the quote-unquote right places so I could be more appealing to men. And I, in order to change that, I, I needed to go back to the core of who I saw myself as outside of my body. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty deep. And so like, how did you, how did you do that? Um, I stopped having toxic relationships with guys who didn't care about me. Mm. I stopped allowing myself to be used for sex while being emotionally abused. Um, I, I started focusing more on the bigger picture of my hopes and dreams and I made a point to not think about my body's place in any of that. So not how will I dress when I do that? Will I be able to do that? More more just the core of who I am and values rather than um, goals necessarily. So not, oh, I want to be a secretary or not putting a job descriptor on it, but more I want to be happy or I want to help people. Um, and realizing that my body didn't actually matter in any of that was a really good realization for me. So I, I did a lot of mental work reinforcing that. I did a lot of talk therapy around that. I made a conscious effort going into new relationships um, that I was more than just a sex object to be used. And that was a really huge revelation for me. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really big one. And I think that a lot of women can, can relate to that. And like, it's interesting, like now that you say that, I see, I see that in my own story that I've never really like processed. So that's really interesting. It's surprisingly <laughs> common. I mean, sometimes we don't even think about it. And you, like, even if you didn't necessarily have toxic relationships, you look back at, you know, previous people you've been with and you think, I didn't have to spend all that time with them. I didn't have to prioritize their sexual pleasure ahead of my own. I didn't have to submit to whatever they wanted from me out of fear that they would dump me. And it's just, it's quite amazing all these, these stories that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how do you like balance that between, cause I mean, there is, there is something to be said for, you know, feeling sexy or like having sex appeal, like, or tuning into your desires. Like how do you balance how, to, or how did you kind of redefine like a relationship with, with, with sex for yourself? That's, that's one that I still kind of struggle with at times. I mean, if I'm having a, a negative body image moment, I definitely still kind of fumble on that one. Um, sex for me these days is more about an emotional connection rather than a physical connection. Mm-hmm. I've, I mean, personally, it's, you know, other people can, but casual sex has never really felt that good to me. I've, I've always preferred the emotional connection and I've, I've never particularly liked separating it as a purely physical thing, which I know is totally fine for some people, but for me it just didn't seem to sit well. Mm-hmm. Um, so feeling sexy is more a state of mind associated with an emotional connection that's kind of totally separate from the bodies for me. Obviously, I mean, I do, I love my body. I feel that my body is sexy in certain contexts. I think my fiancé is totally hot and I love his body. But it's it's more about the, the love connection there and the appreciation for each other is kind of what turns me on these days. So it's, it's whenever sex is kind of initiated purely physically and it's just about, oh, you're hot, I'm hot, let's get sweaty, it kind of doesn't do as much for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's so awesome that you said that. I do think, I think it is, it really is a state of mind. Like it's in it, in it, you know, it, it comes from like the inside. Yeah. And I think, I mean, sex is such a, a beautifully complex thing. And I mean, I hate women's magazines with a passion for many reasons, but part of the reason why is because they lump out 
all, all women in this, this kind of pigeonhole that they put us in is that, you know, certain things will turn everyone on and it's, it's more focused on the partner's pleasure and here's what you should do to turn them on first and then they can focus on your physical, physical pleasure. And women don't seem to have our emotional needs around sex addressed in the media. It's viewed as purely physical. And, of course, it can be purely physical, but sex isn't the same for everyone and I think it's damaging to treat it as such. Mm, yeah, such a good point. That's awesome. And so you mentioned like, you know, sometimes you have bad days. And I think that's like really important for people to understand again, like that, you know, I, I still have bad days, you still have bad days. How do you how do you manage those? For me, one of the biggest things if I'm having a bad day is I need to disconnect from technology almost completely. Uh, you know, social media has been wonderful for me, but it's also been problematic for me. So when I'm having those days, I, I turn off my phone, I turn off the computer, I don't answer my emails, I don't check my Instagram or my Facebook, which is hard and I get, you know, withdrawals from it like some kind of social media junkie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's, I, I find it really beneficial to disconnect from social media so I can't have that outlet to compare myself to other people. Um, a big part of feeling better on those days for me is allowing myself permission to do whatever I need to do. And I've always felt slightly bad about that because I felt, you know, you know, the bills still need to get paid. I still have work to do. Other people have needs that I need to meet for them. Um, but, but allowing myself to put myself first before everyone else on those days really helps because, I mean, you can't pour from an empty cup. I love that saying and it's, it's one that I have written around my house to remind myself of because I often find myself putting myself last and that isn't helpful to me. Um, and in those, in those moments, I find it really helpful to listen to what I actually want from myself on those days. I used to have kind of a a game plan for bad body image days where I'd have like a set number of things that I would do in a certain order. And then looking back on that, I realized that was incredibly rigid and wasn't what I always wanted. So now I kind of just allow myself to, to free fall into it and do what I need to do. Sometimes that's, that's doing some exercise. Sometimes it's sitting on the couch and crying, which can be incredibly cathartic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, sometimes it is a bubble bath and candlelight. And I know that won't fix me, but it's about listening to what I need in that moment and doing it and divorcing myself from any guilt I might feel about putting myself first. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of your kind of bad body moments come from when you're like, when you haven't given yourself enough, um, exactly. nurturing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's so true. I mean, that's, that's been my experience with that as well. And, and I can catch it now like so much more easily. It's about catching it and it's about, it's about not viewing it as a destination and not kind of constantly asking yourself, am I there yet? Am I there yet? And just embracing it and knowing that you will have those bad days and it's okay to have them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really what makes you human. Exactly. Like you're not human if you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Just this weird, like total perpetual body loving alien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would that's, be nice. That would be nice. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be, yeah, I mean, I think I, I feel like that would require like a private island and like a lot of drugs or something. <laughs> it doesn't sound entirely bad to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, maybe <laughs> like hedonism. Okay. Um, yeah. um, and so, like, you know, you mentioned when you started that you like you 
you didn't want to exercise because you thought people would stare if, if you jiggled. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that, like, that is a really common thing, like, that, that women experience, you know? Like, they, they're ashamed of the jiggle. Yeah, for sure. What's your advice to them? Um, you kind of need to reframe the way you see exercise. And I found that it was hard to stop feeling ashamed of the jiggle or the shake or, you know, parts of my body moving that I wasn't used to moving while I was viewing exercise as something to improve how I look rather than how I feel. And obviously there are physical benefits to exercise. It can help you do a number of things as far as the appearance of your body goes. And I think it's totally fine to have those goals as well when they're paired with a healthy and positive mindset around your greater body image. But for me, the best part of exercise is the mental benefits, the stress release, the endorphin rush, how it helps me feel. So when I started focusing on that, I found myself able to be a lot less self-conscious and wondering, you know, why is the woman next to me staring at me? Is it because my arms are jiggling? Can she see, like, my thigh fat through my yoga pants? I mean, like, when, it, when I was more focused on how I felt um, and the positive thoughts that I was having while exercising and how it was alleviating my stress, I was definitely thinking about my body a lot less. Yeah, and I think, um, like, it's probably one of those things that you had to do over and over and over until it just became, like, natural and truly enjoyable. Exactly. And, I mean, like everyone, I still have bad days around it. I still have days where if I'm exercising, you know, that internal chatter starts up and I feel not good enough or I might beat myself up for not exercising enough that week. So it's just about coming back to my core beliefs for me, reminding myself that it's about balance reminding myself how I want to feel when I'm exercising mentally and physically and then doing whatever I can to align myself with that. That's awesome. And so <laughs> you, I mean, you, you, you have a pretty bold Instagram feed. Like you, you know, you put yourself out there a lot. How has that been supportive for you in your journey? It's been, um, it's been quite amazing, really, not necessarily for the comments that people give, but in terms of just my own, confidence and escaping that shame that I previously felt around my body because I mean I used to walk past shop windows and see my reflection and want to cry or you know even after recovering I'd, I'd walk past the shiny windows and I'd glance sideways at myself and I'd do that thing where you know you, you suck in your stomach and you tuck in your bum and you think oh if I could just pinch that in a bit maybe people would like me more and I mean that that culture of shame around my body has really been a huge part of my life so for me getting my body out there and presenting it with a message and sharing part of my story has been hugely therapeutic and I do get some lovely supportive comments from people um, and I also get some negative comments from people um, but for me it's not even it's not even about it's not even about that it's just about escaping that shame for me and being confident in what I'm putting out there and knowing that even though I am a, a deeply flawed individual I'm good enough and I don't have to hide myself mm -hmm. yeah and I think I think like well, you know you you truly do it from this place of like service and, and betterment and like I think that 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 is just like such a such a great fuel for self-worth as well when you kind of have that purpose 
Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's beautiful in many ways, like is is what I'm trying to say in that, like, it's, it's, you know, it's clearly coming from this place of, of, of service. And, um, it's also, I think it's also just a great thing to be proud of your, of your body. And if like you, you know, that's like sharing pictures of it or selfies, like, do more of that. Cause I think that that's, I think that's like a very therapeutic and, and a way to have self-care. Absolutely. And there are so many different ways that we can all find that self-confidence. I mean, sharing selfies won't work for everyone. Some people find it hard to reconcile sharing themselves with positive mental change. And that's totally fine as well. Mm -hmm. And I think societally, it's just about being open to the fact that different people will have different methods of boosting their self-confidence. And it's not necessarily wrong if someone boosts their self-confidence in a way that someone else doesn't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. You have to find what works for, I mean, try stuff on if it works great. If it doesn't work for you, like keep, keep trying different things. I think like totally. that's the whole thing is that it's like, if there was like a solution, like if it was like an, an answer, like, you know, we would be millionaires <laughs> if we had those, like, yeah, it's absolutely. Very, and so individualized based on the experiences that we've had and the beliefs that we have, like that's, that's like such an important thing for people to understand. And that's why like, working with somebody is always a really good idea because um, they can individualize it for you. Yeah, exactly. And it's often hard to kind of identify what will work for you by yourself. If you're, if you're purely emulating what you see other people doing and it doesn't quite feel right, then it can be really, really helpful to have someone else talk you through those things and suggest alternatives that you might not have thought of and think, hey, why doesn't this work for me and why does this and how can I find more things like that to help me feel good? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I was totally off-put at the idea of, like, sitting in a bubble bath with candles and a home <laughs> magazine, so I knew that wasn't going to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as for people who, like, leave you negative comments, like, I'll just, you know, I will just say this, is that, you know, I, th- I reframe that as being a positive thing, like, the wider net that you are casting, the more ugly fish you are going to reel in. So, like, to me, it just means you're, like, reaching way more people, and I think that's an awesome thing so I know it probably I like that analogy (laughs) (laughs) I heard that I heard that from um from Joe Rogan so like (laughs) I didn't come up with that myself ugly fish when they're hateful on Instagram now that's yeah you just think about it as like a big net like you go out fishing every day and the larger your net gets like the more ugly fish you're gonna have so I love it it's just part of it right so I think you can reframe it as like a success (laughs) sure and sometimes those negative comments like they can be hard to receive and obviously there are just trolls out there who just talk total shit and you just delete and block those but sometimes people leave negative comments that actually raise valid points in terms of our culture around weight and body image that although the comments might be negative kind of make you think oh here's a point that I can actually address yeah it's true it's true right we don't want to yeah you I mean if we can approach it with an open mind some of it we can't like yeah. I, I had a hater the other day on Twitter and I went to his profile and I read a bunch of his posts and they were like all really like Donald Trump supporter supporter <laughs> posts. and so I was just like I'm not even like I just blocked I was like block user because like clearly this person is not somebody that I even want to open that box with don't even go there (laughs) no offense (laughs) to my American friends who maybe support Donald Trump but 
<laughs> Canadian, then clearly we don't. So <laughs> Australian, I'm taking no blame here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're. Um, anyways, <laughs> won't get into politics. That's another can of worms yeah, for a different day. We'll save that for another day. So as we wrap things up here, as you probably know, the last question I ask everyone is, "What is the most fearless thing that you have done?" Um, owning my story for sure, and not being ashamed to actually tell people about who I am and where I've come from and not hiding from the details and being fully honest with myself rather than denying my past, um, kind of embracing it and using it as a positive experience. That to me is fearless. That's awesome. And you turned it, you are now the hero of your story. (laughs) Absolutely. And I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. And so where can people find more of you? You have your book. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, so my book is called Inside Out and it was released in November last year Um, and it's based on four long years of my blood and sweat and tears and research and it was born out of my own eating disorder recovery and some of the the psychological tactics that I was using to recover but it also shares common similarities with yo-yo dieters and body dysmorphia and even just people who generally just don't feel as comfortable in their skin as they'd like to. So it's a 14-day guide. Um, It's designed to be read a chapter per day, and there's a little exercise at the end of each chapter to reinforce what you've learned, put that into practice in your life with the idea that after two weeks you'll have 14 new tactics implemented in your life to help you embrace self-love. Awesome. So good. And where else can people find you? Um, so I am on Instagram. You can search for me by my name, Anastasia Amore. Same on Facebook um, and also on my website, which is anastasiaamore.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. It was so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. I'm glad we got our time zones sort of worked out. (laughs) In the end, damn Australia, our time zones are so backwards. (laughs) I know, it's like an entirely different season there. Everything's messed up. (laughs) The toilets flush different. (laughs) It's crazy. It's 41 degrees Celsius here right now. So I'm sitting in front of two fans under an air conditioner trying desperately like not to sweat all over my keyboard. It's quite disgusting and I'm glad this isn't a video call. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Thank you again so much. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Summer. Pleasure to talk to you. Rock on. <laughs> you too. <laughs> if you like what you've heard, please head to iTunes and leave me a review. I would be so grateful if you took two minutes to do that for me. And don't forget to head to summerinandin.com or summerthenutritionist.com to grab your free rule breakers guide to rocking your bod. Until next time, rock on.